Mike isn't on. That's what we, no, there it is. We figured something out this morning with your help. It still sounds good when we sing in here. Amen? Amen. It still sounds good when we sing in here. Um, I'm going to open the word in just a second, but I have some thank yous I want to give. Um, Pastor Andy shared some of them, but I, there's some more that I want to throw in there. Um, a project like this doesn't happen unless there are people to come and babysit it. I don't know about you, but, but people like to take and cut corners and do things, right? And uh, when we began this project, it was going to be Dave Lever, and Dave otherwise had to be in Arizona with his family, and we know that, and, and we're looking forward to, to his return. But I just want to publicly thank Paul Grice for stepping in and filling that role because he was here every day babysitting this project, and we, we needed it. There were guys who needed babysat, um, <laughs> and, and Paul did a great job with that. I want to publicly thank him for that. And there's a group of women who I'm not going to name, but there's a group of women, about six of them, who put together all of this and picked out the colors and did a phenomenal job. Um, I know they did a phenomenal job because the carpet guy said to me, after they had picked everything, he said, do you realize it takes most groups six months to where they got in three weeks? And I'm like, well, you know, we kind of did pressure them. We didn't give them very much time because we figured, you know, <laughs> get it done, right? Um, I want to thank also Daryl for what he did, just like what Andy said. But I want to thank Denny Allen because Denny Allen made us a beautiful sound counter back there. It is wonderful. So thank you, Denny, so much for your hard work. Um, I'm sure I'm leaving somebody out, and I'm sure some of you are like, ah, they got rid of the piano in the process, didn't they? No. <laughs> Put that rumor to rest right now. Um, things happened so last minute that we didn't have an opportunity to get the people who moved the piano for us and lined up and get them back in here and get the piano tuned. So all things being equal, that should be back next week. So you can just save that rumor. You can spread something else on the grapevine, okay? You can spread something else on the grapevine. Um, there's a couple other things that still have to happen in here. I don't know. You probably don't notice them, but we do. Um, we know that there's a projector coming, and the screen is going to change. Um, the first two things we ordered were the projector and the new chairs that haven't come yet. Go figure. So, um, so we still have more blue chairs coming, and we have a new projector coming. But otherwise, it's done. Praise the Lord. Last night, we had the opportunity, and many of you were able to join us, to say goodbye to Carrie and Karen Schwartz. And my intent was, and I didn't even tell you Karen or Carrie, my intent was to bring you up here right now, but I can't do it because I know you're going to cry and it's going to make me going to cry, right? Um, I want to do this, though. How many of you either were a child in that two or three class or you had kids who were in that class. Would you just raise your hand? Yeah. And, and there are a bunch of kids down in children's church. There's a bunch of kids who have gone, grown up and gone off who, who um, they got their first taste of Sunday school under Miss Carrie and Miss Karen. And we're going to miss them. We're going to miss them dearly. But we know that this is God's plan for them, and we are so thankful that God is leading them there. They're going to get to go to Florida, spend some time living with, with Karen's son, with, with Carrie's brother, and then maybe even taking this somewhere else along the East Coast before it's all said and done. 
but I thought it would be good if we prayed for them. And so I've asked Paul if he would just pray for Carrie and Karen and join us in prayer as we send them off, that God would help them in the move, that would help them as they travel, get them settled down there. It's a big thing to pick up and go to, to, go to Florida, and we feel so bad for them, right? Because <laughs> this winter, they're going to be warm while we're cold. But it's a big thing to go find a new church. It's a big thing to get settled. So, Paul, would you pray for them, please? Yeah. Bibles, join me in Luke chapter 12. In Luke chapter 12, how many of you ever had occasion where you've talked to somebody and you said, you know, one day that's going to come back to bite you or you're going to pay for that? How many of you ever had that experience or you've thought that? It's different when the Son of God says something like that. And before we get to Luke 22, which is our text this morning, I want you to see something in Luke chapter 12 where Jesus made a bold pronouncement about his enemies. Luke chapter 12, verse 1, in the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. And then it's as if Jesus turns because this, the next statement is directed right at the, the religious leaders, at the Pharisees, and he says, therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Jesus publicly called out the hypocrisy of the religious leaders, the Pharisees of that day. And he makes a big statement. The things that you're doing in private, the things that you're doing in the dark, are going to one day come to light and be brought out. And our text today in Luke chapter 22 deals with things that are literally done under the cover of night. Done under the cover of night. And it deals with what I call, and what other Bible teachers call, the religious trial of Jesus, with the, with the religious or the Jewish trial of Jesus. Now, to understand some things this morning, I'm going to give you some background to understand why, one, this was such an unjust trial, and two, to understand what's taking place here. And to do that, we're going to have to blend several of the texts of the, of the gospel writers together to understand this, because Luke only records for us, really, the third part of this trial. There are three parts to this religious trial. The first two were totally, completely illegal, unjust, wrong, okay? And we'll get to that here in a few minutes. The third part of this was the attempt of the religious leaders to take what they had done that was wrong and make it look right in the public eye. Don't think for a second that you're living in the first generation where there was corrupt government and corrupt rulers, okay? Corruption, corruption goes all the way back to the garden, and, and these men who put Jesus on trial were as corrupt as they come. I want you to deal or understand this morning that, that the body of men that we're going to see in Luke chapter 22, it's called the assembly of elders in verse 66. The term for that is Sanhedrin or Sanhedrin. Now, that's a term you've probably heard before. You've heard guys like me behind a pulpit throw around this term Sanhedrin, but I don't know if you're like me. When I hear terms like that, I'm like, what do you mean? Who are you talking about? And I think it's important to understand the, the main Sanhedrin, the one that met in Jerusalem, was representative of other smaller Sanhedrins all around Israel. A Sanhedrin simply was nothing more than just a court. 
And it was a court of men. And, but the main Sanhedrin was 70 men who convened in Jerusalem. They came from three groups. They came from these three groups. First, the chief priests, who were mostly Sadducees, who were the conservative people. They were the conservatives in Israel at the time. Okay, If you're trying to think about it like in terms of what we understand from our political system, let's understand this. All throughout history, there have been people who think this way, and there have been people who think clear out on the opposite end of the spectrum, right? And there's been people who are in between. The Sadducees or the chief priests tend to be people who were on the far right. If there was tradition to be kept, they wanted it kept. If, if, there, was, if there was a literal reading of Moses' law, they want that literal reading kept. That's the kind of men that they were. So you had these chief priests who were a big part of this group. Then you had elders. Elders were prominent men from prominent families. Think about it this way. Think about British aristocracy. Or in other words, money talks, right? These were men who were very wealthy, and they liked to throw their influence and their money and, and, and their wealth around, and they got, they, with that, they got what they wanted. So you have religious conservatives, you have men who throw their money around. Now, those two don't normally agree on much, do they? But you have a third group as well, known as scribes. The scribes were mostly Pharisees. Their job was to study, to transcribe, and to write about the law. Not only did they just copy the law down, they wrote what we would call commentaries on the law. And so the scribes would spend all their time studying the law, and, and the more that they studied it, for the most part, the more they found loopholes and ways to change the law to fit their own needs. They certainly would not get along with the Sadducees, would they? So you've got three distinct groups of men who come together, and what's interesting is, think about it just in terms of U.S. politics. How many times can you think of when U.S. politicians have ever got along on something? In my lifetime, the last time was probably 9-11 when they came out and condemned what happened, right? Right? It happens very rarely. It takes something big for, for politicians and men who have power and influence to get along, and yet they're going to agree, all 70 of these men, wholeheartedly with what's about to take place with Jesus. Now, Moses, when he wrote his law, when God gave his law to Moses, he basically gave, and I don't have the time and, and I won't bore you with it to do this, but he basically gave three elements to a criminal proceeding that had to be followed. And these three elements were this. One, it had to be a public trial. It had to be done where the public could come in and observe. Two, there had to be, an, there had to be a defense for the accused. There had to be someone there who would speak for the accused. And thirdly, you had to have confirmation of guilt by two or three eyewitnesses. Okay, so three things, a public trial, there had to be a defense for the, for the accused, and there had to be a confirmation of guilt by at least two or three witnesses. Guess how many of those three were violated in Jesus' case? All three. All three. All three were clearly broken in Jesus' case. Not even close. The, the, the first two trials that we're going to look at under the religious trials were not public trials at all. They were done at night. They were done at night. They were done on, the, on a religious holiday as well, in which no, religi no trials were ever to be held. 
Secondly, there was no defense brought in for Jesus. No defense at all. And thirdly, there were no witnesses that produced any credible testimony of what Jesus was accused to be guilty of. You say, that is a complete, horrible miscarriage of justice. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. But I want to point something out as we begin this morning. Isaiah 53.10 says this, it was the will of the Lord or it pleased the Lord to crush him. You say, how can those two things be true? That, that this is a horrible injustice that led to Christ being crucified, yet it was God's plan. Well, let's understand this. God, even in injustice, accomplishes his purposes and will be glorified through human injustice. I take some comfort in that. I take some comfort in that because we live in a world today where there's injustice being done every day, is there not? There are, the, right is, is being accused of being wrong and wrong is being celebrated as right and yet here's the thing, the very God that we sang about this morning who's sitting on his throne, he will achieve his purpose every time and he will be glorified every time. So with that in mind, turn with me to Luke chapter 22, and now we pick up the account. Luke picks up the account after Peter has denied Christ, he picks up the account. Now there are some things that Luke hasn't told us that we're going to go back and see, but I want you to see the text first this morning. Verse 63, now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. That's a fourth injustice. The only time you're allowed to physically assault a prisoner is if he was declared guilty. The men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, if you're paying attention, words matter, when day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. As I mentioned to you, this is only the third part. This is the final part of the trial. And so we need to understand what's happened here. The timeline is this. Jesus is arrested in the garden, right? And, and, and it's there where Peter tries to cut off the, the servant of the high priest's ear, and, and Jesus heals him, and then he is led into Jerusalem. But before he gets to verse 66, where we are in verse 66, where he's appearing before the whole, the whole Sanhedrin, there are several things that happen before this. These are things that, based on the way that they happen, we can safely assume these things were planned. These things were planned. When Christ was arrested, they knew exactly where they were going to take him, what they were going to do with him. Luke chooses not in his account to cover this, but I think it's important for us to understand. So to do so, let's keep your finger here and let's go to John chapter 18. John records this. And let's understand this morning that John's record of this, we know it's 
It's given to us by inspiration, but we also can safely trust this for sure because John was there. He witnessed all this, right? John, John would have been witness to all of this. So in John chapter 18 and verse 12, we find out what happens. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and they bound him. This would have been in the Garden of Gethsemane. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would not, or that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Let's understand what first happens here. Jesus is arrested and he is taken to a private citizen's house. A private citizen who doesn't even have a role in government right now. He's taken to Annas' house, okay? Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. We see there in verse 13. We need to understand who Annas is. Annas was a high priest at one point, but if you know anything about Jewish custom and Jewish law, you can only serve a high priest for only so long. But Annas used his time as high priest to build power around him. He had built a coalition of people around him. It was Annas who set up the, the, the way that, that animals were bought and sold and the money was changed in the temple. It was Annas who had established all of that. And, and make no mistake, Annas was getting rich off of that business that was happening in the temple grounds. So you have Annas, who, who is the father-in-law of Caiaphas. What isn't said here is, is that Annas had five sons. So after Annas, each one of his five sons served as high priest. And now he's run out of sons, so he has daughters, so now his son-in-law, Caiaphas, is the high priest. There's just a little bit of nepotism going on here, right? Just a little bit happening here. He's a powerful man, and he has used his power and his influence now, and he's going to start throwing his influence around here when it comes to Jesus John records for us what happens with Peter, but I want us to skip down to verse 19. The high priest, that would be Annas, and he would still have that title of high priest, even though he was not the acting high priest. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. One of the things about a Jewish trial was the only people who were allowed to ask questions of Jesus were members of the Sanhedrin, of which of which Annas now is, is, is now violating that because he's not a priest anymore. And here Annas is questioning Jesus. Jesus answered in verse 20, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the jewels come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Do you understand what Jesus is doing here? He's pointing out the injustice of what's happening here. He's like, I've never done anything. I've never said anything that I proclaim that you're asking me about in secret. And basically what he's saying is, well, I've never done anything in secret. Why are you bringing me here in secret, Annas, and questioning me here alone? It's a challenge to them to bring witnesses. You'll see in verse 22 that when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is this how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Jesus just simply points out, and Jesus it gives us a lesson, if you will, too, on how do you and I advocate for ourselves whenever things are wrong. Is Jesus speaking truth back to these people? He is. Is he, is he appealing to what his rights are? 
Yes, he is. He is, and he's doing it in a respectful way. But you'll notice that this ends the first phase of the trial because verse 24, Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Okay? Annas is the most important, most influential man in this, in, in, from the Jewish religion side of this. Okay? And now after he's had his speech and after he had his conversation with Jesus, now he sends him over to Caiaphas. Basically what he's saying to is, is saying to Caiaphas, hey, I, I think I found that this guy is guilty. Just do what you need to do with him now. So we pick up the account now. And to do this, I want to go to Matthew 26 because I want you to see a couple things in Matthew 26 where Matthew records this. Matthew 26 Verse 57, then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And of course, then we have the, the account of Peter, he's following. And verse 59, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the, the son of God. And so now, still at night, before Caiaphas, they're bringing in false testimony. They're, they're trumping up charges, if you will, of blasphemy. You look at verse 65. Then the high priest tore his robes, and he said, he's uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment, they answered. He deserves death. Again, that's something that Caiaphas, as the high priest, could not give. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Which is the account that we read in Luke. So understand now, when we come to Luke chapter 22, that Jesus has already been a part of too many trials. Jesus has already been a part of too many trials where, where he has been questioned by the former high priest and now the acting high priest. And so, when we come to verse 66, Luke does give us a clue as to what's happening when he says, when day came. So now it's day, and, and, now, and now the religious leaders who already have predetermined what the end will be for Jesus, and, and they've, they've gone through, if you will, their kangaroo court, now they have to put a, a nice, shiny, legal veneer on all of the misdeeds that they have done. And so what they do is they convene the Sanhedrin. You see in verse 66, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. They take him to the actual temple grounds. And on the temple grounds, there is a chamber there on the temple mount where, where the Sanhedrin met. And they bring, them, they bring Jesus into his, this formal cha chamber, and they now convene a legitimate court after they've done all this illegal behind the scenes. And so, what I want us to see this morning in the time that we have left is is one, the wisdom of Jesus and how he handles this situation, 
And two, I, I want you to see how, how, Luke, how Luke records for us three very important names for Christ in this tiny little passage. But before we do, before we do, I want you to see the mistreatment of Jesus in verses 63 through 65, and I want, you, I want us just to let that sink in for a second. Jesus said in John chapter 15 and verse 20, if they persecute me, they will persecute you. Now, we tend to think of persecution in this way. Someone said something rude to me on the job because I'm a believer. I was offended because I had to go to this sensitivity training or something like that. Is that how we typically define persecution in our culture? I want you to understand the persecution that Jesus was talking about to his disciples in John chapter 15 was not just words. You see, the gospel writers record for us that, that it's during this time that as they're striking Jesus and he's blindfolded, and think for a second, being blindfolded, you have no idea anything's coming. You can't prepare yourself for any shots coming your way, can you? And the, here we have here we have these men who are fueled with rage, and they're pronouncing judgment on Jesus, and the soldiers who are holding them are, are, are being fueled by the religious leader's rage, and I'm telling you, these are not little hits that Jesus is taking. He's taking full blows. Not only are they doing that, but the, the, gospel record, the gospels record for us that during this time, they're literally grabbing his beard and they're pulling it out of his face. They're spitting in his face, and he's not saying a word, and he's not fighting back. And as we think about that, I want you to think this way. Every drop of spit should have been in your face and in my face, should it have not been? Every punch should have been in my face, not his face. Every whisker torn out of his face should have been torn out of every one of the men in this room's face and not Christ's face. And then ask yourself this, why is he doing it? Why is he doing it? Because it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Why? <laughs> so that the word of God might be true and all the prophecies about him might be true. And that he might be the perfect, sinless Savior for us. You see, it's amazing in one hand when you think about it, the, the Son of God, but also he's a man. And he lives a sinless life up to this point. But can you imagine still being sinless when you are being totally mistreated? The thought of it makes me angry that probably to the point of sin right now. And so as Luke records this for us. Don't skip over verses 63 and through 65. Let that sink in what's happening here. The Son of God, the Son of God is literally taking blows for you and for me. He's enduring awful words. He's enduring his beard being, being pulled out of his face. He's enduring having himself being spit on. He's enduring all of this without retaliating at all. And then they lead him 
to this sham of a trial. And the first question they have for them, for him, is in verse 67. And it's the first of these three, these three names for Christ that I want us to see. If you are the Christ, tell us. If you are the Christ, tell us. The first challenge to Jesus was, are you the Christ or not? The, the word Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. We get the, the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one. The Greek word for that is Christ. And they're asking him, are you the one that has been promised all through all of our heritage and all through all of our history? Are you the one who's been promised? Think back. They knew enough of the law to know this. Are you the one who, who God pronounced way back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, the one who was going to come and crush the serpent's head? Do you say that you're that one? The idea of being Christ has been a theme, a big theme in Luke's writing. In chapter 2 and verse 11, the message of the angels that Luke records for us is, is unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, the Messiah, the Lord. Simeon, when he was taken, when Jesus was taken as a baby to the temple, Simeon proclaims in front of the whole temple courtyard, I have seen the Lord's Christ. I've seen the Messiah. Peter, in chapter 9 and verse 20, as Luke records this history, he says this, Jesus, you are the Christ of God. You are the sent one. You are the anointed one. And now he's being asked by 70 men who have already determined that he's guilty and have already determined that he's going to die, are you the Messiah? And I think to myself, if I was the Messiah in this moment, this is, how, this is how a Scarberry would reply to this. Yes, I am the sent one, and you missed your chance. Anybody else with me? You are the sent, I am the sent one, and you done missed it. You screwed this up. No, Jesus really doesn't even give an answer. He says, if I tell you, you won't believe. If I tell you, you won't believe. Should we be surprised today when we tell people about who Jesus is that they don't believe? Jesus himself is standing right there. He says, if I tell you, you won't believe me. That basically, that non-answer is an answer. Then he continues on, and if I ask you, you will not answer. Like, if, 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 if this is flipped around and I ask you, do you believe that I'm the Christ, you're not going to answer me. They'd already made up their minds about Jesus. They'd already made up their minds that he was not the Messiah, that he needed to die, to die. And let's understand what they're doing there and what Jesus is pointing out to them, whether or not they even are, are, are sharp enough to realize this. You are setting aside the Lord's Messiah. You are saying no to Almighty God and His plan in, in, in judging me and in, in, in putting me to death. You are setting aside the Messiah. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He, he continues. 
And this has been a theme that we have seen all throughout the Gospel of Luke. Whenever Jesus does get in a confrontation with the religious leaders, either he responds very, very deftly or he chooses not to respond, but he usually gives them something that they weren't asking for, doesn't he? And that's what happens in verse 69, and you see the second name for Jesus. It comes from Jesus' own mouth. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Whoa! Okay, this is already an explosive courtroom, and Jesus has just dropped a major bombshell on them. Son of Man was Jesus' favorite designation for himself. Probably close to a hundred times in the Gospels, you'll see record of Jesus referring to himself as the Son of Man. There's no mistaking why he does it. Keep your finger here and go with me back to the book of Daniel. I want you to see Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. Because this comes directly from Daniel. And Jesus is clearly and intentionally connecting himself to to the Son of Man that Daniel talks about here in Daniel chapter 7. So Daniel is, is talking about, he's writing about a dream that he's had, okay? And in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13, actually go up to verse 9, as I look, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat, okay? That's God Almighty, right? So then verse 13, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As Jesus is standing on trial for his life in front of these religious leaders, he announces this, but from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of God. Here's what Jesus is saying to them, and they didn't want to hear it. Not only are you rejecting your Messiah, you are rejecting the Son of Man, the one who will sit at the right hand of of God himself in heaven, and the one who sits at the right hand of God, according to Daniel chapter 7, is the one who gets to judge all the nations. And what Jesus is announcing here, you want to talk about the ultimate win here? He's announcing it. You're judging me now, but understand this. One day you will fall under my judgment. You will fall under my judgment. It's interesting. Jesus, Jesus loved that term. When Peter, in, in, as I referred to in Luke chapter 9, pronounced Jesus as the Messiah, he, Jesus' reply to Peter was this. He says, he says I, I'm the son of man. <laughs> he refers right after that. He's like, no, it's the son of man. He's not contradicting Peter. But, but Jesus wanted people and he wanted his disciples to know, I am the one who will reign. Jesus is doing exactly what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 110, and many of you know this, but if you don't, turn with me to Psalm 110, because this is what Jesus is announcing to to these religious leaders, to the Sanhedrin. He's saying exactly what David said, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your what? 
your footstool. And Jesus is announcing to these religious leaders, you think you have all the power, you think you have the upper hand right now, you're nothing more than my footstool. You're nothing more than my footstool. See, Jesus isn't just a political Messiah that's coming to rescue Israel and restore law and order there. He is the king. He is the son of man. He is the one who is seated at God's right hand right now, and he announces to them, yeah, you're going to kill me, and that's going to be fine, because where I'm going, you're not going to go. I'm going to be at the right hand of the power of God. Luke doesn't record for us the outrage, but can you imagine the outrage of these 70 men when they hear this? You could also imagine in their minds, oh, we're getting really close to, to having what we need here. We're getting really close. And so in verse 70, they ask a question. They all said, they, Luke, Luke is not giving us hyperbole here. They all shout out when they hear Jesus say this, are you saying you're the son of God? You see it there in verse 70? Are you the son of God then? They knew what he was claiming here. He was claiming to be deity. And, 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 and let's understand, they're looking at a man, Right? They're looking at a man. They've observed this man for three years in his public ministry. They've seen him do unmanlike things, right? But they're looking at a man. And they're looking at a man who's standing in front of them, totally disheveled. His face is ripped to shreds. He's covered in the, in the soldier's spit. He's bleeding from where he has been punched. And they're looking at him and they're saying, You're saying that you're the Son of God? And Jesus' response is, you say that I am. Basically what he's saying is, you said it. You said it. I am. I am. The New American Standard is very blunt. It says, yes, I am. I like that translation of it. Yes, I am. But let's understand something here. In that moment, if they had really believed that, they'd have all been on their knees, right? They'd have all been on their knees, right? They'd have been, they'd have been before him and like, okay, we got to make this right with you. But they didn't believe him at all. But there's, there's important things in here for you and I. You see, it's not just Israel who needs a Messiah. You and I need a Messiah, we need someone to be sent for us. And that someone needs to be the Son of Man, who is the Son of God. Because unless the Son of God dies in our place, there's no atonement for you and I. There's no making things right with God. And let there be no doubt this morning as we look at this text the religious leaders rejected the very one who was sent to rescue them. They rejected the very Son of God as their Messiah. They rejected their Savior, and they rejected it as they were confronted with the truth of it because they had made up their mind. There's a lot of people still today who have made up their mind, haven't they? 
You see, Jesus didn't just die as a man who was perfect. He died as the Messiah King, the one who is the Son of Man, the Son of God. That's who died on that cross for you and I. And it came out at his trial. It came out at his trial. In fact, next week when we look at, at the political trial, Pilate himself, when he issues the thing that's to be put on the cross, what does he write? King. King of the Jews. Pilate grasped it more than these religious leaders who, who knew all the history of Israel, who knew all the prophecies, who knew that there was a Messiah coming. But to reject this one who was rejected is to do so at our own peril, isn't it? These religious leaders literally, physically were so close. They heard the words, and yet they rejected him. And to reject is to bring his judgment on you. Because the very same Jesus who was all beaten and broken and humbled and standing before them, is now the all-powerful one who sits at the right hand of Almighty God, who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. But also, for those who will come to him, it's told that he's sitting at a throne of grace. It's an amazing thing, the, the paradox of that. The throne of judgment is also the throne of grace. Many of you have been with us for most of the time when we've gone through the gospel of Luke. Luke is building right to this right now. All of Luke has been building to this. We have seen overwhelming evidence over and over of who Jesus is. And if you have been with us week after week and you've been listening and you've been paying attention, the evidence is incontrovertible. Christ is who he said he was. And the question is, what do we do about that? It's the same question for the religious leaders. What do we do about this? There's a reason why we sang all those throne songs this morning. Do you understand why now? You get it? Good job, by the way. There's a reason why we're singing about the one who's sitting on the throne, because that's where he is. There's a reason why we focus on Jesus as the one who's risen and placed at the right hand of God. But it's good for us to look at Jesus, the man who was beaten and torn and suffering because we see his heart of love. We see just how much he was willing to endure so that you and I might have salvation. Isn't that an amazing thing, church? Isn't that just an amazing thing? You know, I'm not trying to equate or say this. I mean, a cross death is a horrible death, and it is. It's a terrible death, but, but the stuff leading up to it, we tend to overlook. We overlook everything that happened to him, all the, the punching and, 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 all the, and all of the spitting and all of the tearing at him, and then, and then to be reduced to this man who's totally beaten, broken, and then standing naked in front of, in front of the whole crowd. And then they, they have the audacity to put a crown of thorns on his head. Why? 
for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Isn't that an amazing thing, that he would do that? And so this morning, maybe you've never thought much about why Jesus came or what he did, but understand this, understand this. Jesus went through all of that so that you might have salvation. And if you reject that, you reject your Messiah. You reject the Son of Man, and one day he will be your judge. Say, that sounds rather harsh. That's truth. And we all need a good smacking in the face of truth, don't we? Hopefully you could sing those songs this morning celebrating Christ on the throne because he is your king on the throne. But if he's not, you can still humble yourself before him and own him as your king. Father, we, we, we can't even begin to comprehend the love of our Savior. We can't even begin to comprehend the love of our God that, that would love us so much that you would turn your back on the Son and judge our sins in Him. And so this morning I pray that we would be gripped by the sacrifice of Christ. For those of us who have humbled and, and, and bowed the knee to King Jesus, I pray that we would be profoundly thankful this morning. But more than that, but that we would be profoundly willing to serve this wonderful king who did so much for us. For those in this room who have not bowed to Jesus as king, may today be the day. And before I close this prayer, I would just say to you, if one of the elders could talk with you, just we would love to meet with you and, and share with you about Christ if you don't know Christ as your savior. Just come find one of us. We do celebrate you as king. We celebrate you as, as the one that, that has the name that's above all names. And we look forward to the day when we will willingly, gladly be able to bow before you. And we pray this in the name of our king, King Jesus. Amen.